Today's sermon text is John seven twenty-five to 39. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? <clears throat> but we know where this man comes from, and when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is God's word. All right, Um, we're currently in a series called Putting on Christ, and um, I've said that we're trying to hit two birds, we're trying to hit two birds with one stone with this series, which are in essence the same thing. Um, We want to know Jesus. We want to experience him, be filled with him, compelled by him know him, and we also want to learn how to throw off the destructive habits and sinful desires and impairments that we have in our lives. Um, I was really struggling with where to go in this week two message because in order to know Jesus and put him on, And to put off the things that entice us and ensnare us. I can't give you three points. An illustration. Three points did not get us where we are. We spent a lifetime experiencing the after effects of our various stories and wounds, and destructive trauma, 
and pain. And as a result of those pains that we've experienced, we picked up habits over our whole lives so that we could medicate the trauma and the pain that we feel. Those are things that we've done our whole lives, practices that we've polished, behaviors that we've cultivated and nourished and have really grown mature in. They are part of us now. You don't just say to someone, stop doing that. Simple answers don't fix complex trauma and the toxicity that's inside of us. And so the struggle is to quickly go too speedily to here's what you do to fix yourself. And then this series is a distant memory as we launch a new series at some point down the road. And we're a little bit more cynical because we've spent more hours in church services and deep down inside we know something really, really unsettling. I am still the same person. I am still the same person. And so what we're trying to do, uh, beginning two weeks ago, and even though Bill's sermon last week was not in this series, quote-unquote, man, it could be a part of this series. Um, we're trying to get look under the hood, begin to tinker with what's down deep inside of us. And so we have to spend some weeks getting into our hearts, into our head, into our fears, our emotions, our anger, the things that we really, really love that we don't think we could live without. Um, there's a... Um, a quote that I wanted to use to begin this morning with, it's by a guy named A.W. Tozer. I don't know if you know who A.W. Tozer is, but he wrote a wonderful devotional book in like, I want to say 1948 or 47, and it's called The Pursuit of God. And there's a sentence, a, a, a quote in that book that really shakes me whenever I read it because it holds a mirror to myself. And the quote is this, when religion or Christianity, that's what he would mean by that, has said its last word, there is little that we need other than God himself. So we can learn lots of stuff, we can do lots of things, but when it's all said and done, what we really need is God himself, the person, that's what we need. He said the evil habit of seeking, and this, I love this, God and God and effectively prevents us from finding God in full revelation. There are things that we love along with God, but God cannot coexist with other loves. I don't mean that you don't have other affections that are wholesome and good. This world that God made, even in its fallen state, God thinks it's good. The New Testament teaches that we should be able to enjoy the things of this world like a good food and good drink to the glory of God. So he's not saying that we shouldn't enjoy the things of this world. I don't want to create a false dichotomy here. The God and that Tozer speaks of 
is the idea that there are things in my life that feed my identity that I really don't believe deep down I can live without. And if Jesus began to lean on some of those things and ask them to entrust him with those things, give them over to me, would our faith still be standing? There was a young man who came to Jesus. Maybe some of you have heard this story. He's called the rich young ruler in scripture. And he said, what must I do? There's something I lack. I've done everything. I've, I've kept the law. I've kept all the commandments. And at the end of the story, Jesus said, yeah, there's one thing that you lack. And Jesus, as astutely as he always does, held a mirror to the soul of this rich young ruler who was a devout religious man. He knew that he was controlled and owned by his possessions. And he said, sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, and follow me. Jesus literally asked this young man to be one of his disciples. And that young man walked away saddened because he couldn't. It's the problem of the God and. And Tozer says, he identifies that. This evil habit of seeking God and effectively prevents us from finding God in full revelation. In the and lies our great woe. If we omit the and, we shall soon find God. And in him, we shall find that for which we all have for all of our lives secretly longed. We've been secretly longing for something all of our lives. Many of us aren't even aware of that deep longing down inside of us. But if we're willing to part ways with the and, then we will experience real change. I said on Easter Sunday, and I mentioned it again two weeks ago in part one of this series, that what we're really going for fundamentally is to kill the darkness that has its claws dug into us. It's to kill that. It's to part ways with destructive habits. And the only way we can do that is by courageously looking at the idols that we have in our lives and willingly give those over to Jesus. I'm not going to be naive. I'm not going to paint a picture that is simplistic like so many preachers do. That is a lifetime what I'm talking about. That's not something that happens at the end of the, down front at the end of the service. That is a lifetime of learning to give over my idolatry to Jesus. But I really, really hope you join me. I hope you join me. That's the path that I'm on. Two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus freed us from this present evil age. I'm not going to re-preach it as tempting as it is to do that. Um, but we, just, we, we realized how when, when Jesus entered into this dark world, and when he entered into this dark world, he exercised his authority over all things. He freed people from being possessed and oppressed by, by the demonic And at the end of his ministry, when he died on the cross, the book of Hebrews says that when he died on the cross, he destroyed the devil. And we learned that what destroyed means wasn't to annihilate. That's later on when Satan is cast into the lake of fire. But in the meantime, Jesus, his work on the cross was so significant that it obstructed Satan's works in the lives of people who follow Jesus. Satan is 
bound past tense. Or I should say present perfect. Because he's bound right now. And he will keep being bound all the way through until the end. He is bound. He does not have power and authority over us. That is crazy essential that you get that. We have to grasp this. Because there are many of us who give our stories power over us by saying, I can't overcome this. When Jesus has. We're not talking about mind tricks here. We're talking about real facts. As real as gravity is, as real as these walls are, as real as the sun in the sky is, Jesus bound Satan. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are not living under Satan's authority. Your sin no longer has power over you. We're going to be teasing that out this series. You've got to get that. And I hope you... Follow my challenge that I've been giving since December. And that challenge is this. What would your life look like if every single time you gathered with us on a Sunday morning, you took some notes. You didn't just wait for me to wow you with something. But you took notes and you engaged the message with me. And then that week, you spent time reading and rereading the text that was preached on Sunday morning. And you pray through your notes throughout that week. And then your heart is ready for next Sunday's teaching in the series. And what you're doing is you are rooting yourself down in the spiritual rhythms of the church. There are churches full of people every single week that go to the same service. And there are those whose lives are teeming with life. And there are those who are emotionally and spiritually flat. It all comes down to us together fellowshipping over God's word together. Will you do that with me this morning? I hope you will. I hope you will. Um, I want to set the stage here for this text this morning. John chapter 7. Um, it begins in chapter 7, verse 2, with John, who's writing, who wrote this gospel, pointing out that what is happening at the moment is the Feast of Booths, or Booths. Every time I said Booths, I thought, will that sound right when I say that? Um, no, it doesn't. So, I know, it sounds like I'm saying something else. What do you think that is? Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, feast of Booths. Feast of Booths. And this, now, this is, what's interesting is, is we're in John 7. There's a bunch of chapters left in John. The majority of the gospel of John is still in front of us. We have to go through the rest of this gospel to get to the end of the story. Yet, by John chapter 7, we are already only six months from the crucifixion. And so this drama that John is painting for us, he wants us to get something about Jesus. He's not, he didn't just set out to write his gospel and say, hmm, what are all the facts that I can remember about the life of Jesus? And let me record those in order. That's not his goal here. He wants to tell us a story about Jesus. The gospel of John is a sermon and a long sermon. They would have read this publicly in their services 2,000 years ago with no kids ministry. Can you believe that? The entire book. So, so the gospel of John has been in chapter 7. We are six months, six months from Jesus' crucifixion. This is the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths 
is one of the three major feasts. Israel had more feasts than that, but they had three major feasts. The Feast of Booths that took place in September or October. Then there was the Feast of Passover, followed a few weeks later by the Feast of Pentecost. It was at the Feast of Passover, about five or six months later, that Jesus was going to be tortured and murdered for us. And it's here at the Feast of Booths that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem and he is in the temple during the text that we read. What is the Feast of Booths? The Feast of Booths was this feast that comes from the time of the harvest when the Jews were in the wilderness. And when they would harvest their crops, during the harvest, they would build these little shacks made of sticks and leaves and whatever debris that they could find in the wilderness, whatever things are in the wilderness, wildernessy things, rocks and other things. And they would, they, would, they would fashion these crude booths and they would live in these booths, these little shacks, for about a week. This is the Feast of Booths. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, you have this feast that's observed every single year where thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews from all over the known world pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And people in that day and age are still like in their little courtyards or their backyards or on the curb near their home, their little dwelling place. They would fashion these little booths and they would live and sleep and eat in those booths during that week, during the week of the feast. And what this did was it commemorated God's provision for Israel when they were in the wilderness, how God provided for them. But it was also... A celebration, because this was an agrarian society. They did agriculture. That's, that, was the, that was their economy. That was how they ate. That was how they survived. And so they would celebrate in the fall with the Feast of Booths when the harvest would come in. Yay, we've got food to eat. They would have this feast. Thousands of Jews would come, thousands and thousands. And it was the final day of the Feast of Booths. It was called the Great Day. We'll talk about that in a second. And so here's the conflict. Here's the conflict. John is teasing out all through his gospel, all through his gospel, that there are people who struggle giving Jesus all of their trust. I'm not sure I buy into Jesus. I don't get it. And if you read this text, you can see sort of the incredulousness in the crowd. Chapter 7 begins with Jesus' brother saying, Hey, we're going to the Feast of Booths. Why aren't you going? What's the deal? And Jesus said, Because it's not my time. Meaning, we think, that we still had a few months to go before Jesus was going to be killed. Jerusalem was the place where Jesus was a wanted man. You show up there and they notice you, they may have their way with you. And so Jesus is a little reticent to go, but it's not that he's not going to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't want to go to Jerusalem the way that his brothers want him to go to Jerusalem. And if you read the first part of John chapter 7, his brothers are ridiculing him. They've noticed that he does real legitimate miracles. They can't argue with that. But they still think Jesus is some sort of like fraud mystic. 
And so they're teasing him. Why don't you go? Why, it doesn't make sense, Jesus, for you to stay up in Galilee up north, which is like a backwater where a bunch of country people are. Why don't you go to cosmopolitan Jerusalem and build your movement there? Get more disciples. Cause more people to follow you. And Jesus, when it says in the text that he didn't want to go, I don't think it means that his brothers pressured him so much that finally he gave in and went is that he didn't want to go to Jerusalem the way that his brothers wanted him to go to Jerusalem. Jesus said, it's not my time. I'm not there to go and make a bunch of noise right now. And so Jesus, kind of sneakily and stealthily, makes his way to Jerusalem. And this is where he's in the temple. And they're having this great feast. And it's on the last day of the feast, this last great day. And so there's all this commotion. Jesus, people noticed Jesus, and this is where we see in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, just teaching. And they say nothing to him. They say nothing to him. So now they're saying, Pharisees, religious leaders, what's the deal? God, are you guys going to put up or shut up? I thought, she, I thought this was a wanted man. Can it be that the authorities really know that he's the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, one of these really easy to discern, understandable sermons by Jesus. You know me and you know where I come from. Don't play like you don't, in other words. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. Now that's big. You do not know God. That's like me going up to you in church and saying, Hey, Gary Lester, you don't know God. You're playing games in church today. That's what it's felt like to these people. They were in the, one of the greatest feasts, worshiping God, celebrating God's provision. And Jesus is saying, you people don't know him. Not a great way to grow a church. <laughs> but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and you, him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. That's when they wanted to arrest him. He calls him out. They want to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because Jesus was in control. Because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than what he has done? How can it be that someone else is going to come along and overshadow his ministry? This must be Jesus, the Christ. And so you've got all of this confusion amongst Israel. There are people who are like, no way, we don't buy this, he is a fraud. And then you've got others who are like, I don't know if he really is or not. I'm kind of afraid to believe because he's a wanted man and I don't want his fate if I tether myself to him. And then you've got others who are saying, come on, seriously? Look at him. It's got to be the Christ. It's got to be the Christ. And then Jesus gives this ominous warning. Look at verse 32 through 35. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things. They were muttering these things. They were just muttering and muttering and muttering. 
And the chief priest of the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, I love the way scripture again holds a mirror up to ourselves. Because I read this and I'm thinking to myself, why? Okay, we know that Jesus is going to die on the cross one day. We know on this side of the story, he's going to be resurrected from the dead. We know that he's going to appear to his disciples, over 500 of them. And we know that he's going to ascend to the right hand of God the Father. We know all of this. And since then, people have gone all over the earth and preached the gospel. And people like us have said, okay, I believe this. I'm going to follow Jesus. So why is Jesus saying here that once I'm gone, you won't be able to come where I am? Why is he saying that at, at, at the point that I have ascended to God and I am out of your midst in my phys- with my physical body, why is it at that point it will be impossible for some of these people to follow Jesus? Why? Because I follow Jesus. Anybody follow Jesus in here? Anybody follow Jesus? Like, follow Je- Raise your hand. Follow Jesus. Right, like really, if you follow Jesus, I'm just serious. Like if you follow Jesus, raise your hand. I'm not, I'm not trying to trick you. Um, got you. You got to pay 5% more today. I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm just like, ask, like, if you follow Jesus, you didn't follow Jesus because you were there before he died and saw him. You, you came thousands of years after him and you believe the gospel and you follow Jesus. Why is it that these people couldn't follow Jesus if they didn't believe? Why? That's interesting. Why can't the Pharisees just get saved later? Why can't they just get saved then Jesus presses them further. The next chapter, same things going on here. They're still in the temple area. Jesus says this, John eight twenty one. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Whoa. So wait a second. I thought we're supposed to seek God. And I thought the Bible says, if you seek him, we will find him. If we knock the door will be opened. What's up with that? Why can't these people seek him later and then just get saved? Why can't they do that? Why can't they do that? I think this is holding a mirror up to our culture, up to our messed up thinking. Um, you see, our culture in the Southern Bible Belt at least, maybe in other places too, Our culture has taught us to believe that God is waiting for us almost with bated breath, desperate for us to follow him. Desperate. He's constantly entreating us, constantly entreating us to come to him, to be with him. And yet we shoo him away like a toddler underfoot. This morning, as it happens on many Sunday mornings, I look at my sermon and I totally hate it. I'm like, oh, I can't look at this. So I rewrite the whole thing. And Mike is sitting there at the table. I've already made him porridge. 
My wife, my wife grew up in the prairie in Canada. We call it porridge in our house. I call it oatmeal. She calls it porridge. She says things like, I've got a bee in my bonnet. And I'm like, people don't wear bonnets anymore. I'm going to take the wagon train to work. Um, but anyway, so we love, I love Canadians. Um, and so this morning, Mike is sitting at the table. And I'm burning through my sermon, trying to get this thing written, feeling all of your pressure to give you something good today. Okay. And so, so I'm, I'm punch, punching those keys left and right. And, and he's like, dad, I need some more porridge. And as only my son can do, he proceeds to ask me 10,000 more times. And I keep saying to him over and over and over again, Micah, I cannot make porridge right now. Ask your mom. But I make porridge better than Becky does. And so he wants me to do the porridge. So... I didn't say I could cook better than Becky does. Or at all. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Give me a toaster and some water. I'm pretty good. And I know you don't put those together, but... What's the name of that website where somebody needs food and you bring them a meal? Is it bring them a meal? Take them a meal. I'm starting a website called Bring Me a Meal. Um, Becky is leaving me. Briefly. Um, Becky is, Becky is, this is really, this is terrible leadership I'm doing right now, but whatever. Um, Becky is, Becky is leaving me at the end of May for two weeks with four kids. And she knows I can't cook. And I'm like, why would you do that to me? And so, so I'm starting a website called Bring Me a Meal. Just let you know, just be looking out for that. Um, Little Caesars. Um, But seriously. If you want to bring me a meal, I will take that meal. Um, there's some verse that talks about serving your pastor. So, um, so way, way off, off the trail here. Um, um, so Jesus, so we believe that he's that God is constantly entreating us to come to Him. And we shoo him away like a little toddler that's under our feet. And when we're ready to engage our annoying little toddler, God, once we've finished with our business, we'll turn our attention to him. And this says a lot about what we believe about salvation, doesn't it? It says that I'm in control of it. It says that salvation is merely praying a prayer, making a decision. When John has been teaching us already in his gospel that the only way you can even come to God is that the Spirit draw you to him. And so you've got these two different phenomena that are, phenomena that are taking place. One is the drawing of the Spirit on believers. And then the other is people who are experiencing the drawing of the Spirit and they are hardening their hearts against him. And Jesus is saying, I think, you harden your heart so much, you will come to a place where it will be impossible for you to find me. I am not at your beck and call. That's not what I'm here for. 
Now, this is really unsettling because culture tells me as an American preacher, I should only say things that tickle your belly, that soothe you. I just can't do that. That's not what the scriptures are teaching us here. And so Jesus gives us this ominous warning. And I think all of us really, really need to think hard about this. We really need to think about this. What areas of our lives have we allowed our hearts to calcify and get really hard? In what ways, for those of us who are in Jesus, in what ways are we resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit? What's the last thing that the Holy Spirit convicted you of? Can you recall a time over the last week? Was there a moment when the Holy Spirit leaned on a behavior, an action, a word, a heart motive, and you thought, oh, I just grieved God. I just dishonored the Father with that. Do you know what that's like? Because that regularly happens to Christians. People who have the Holy Spirit in their lives. That regularly happens to us. Or, or do we stuff it? Because another thing that our society has taught us is that we shouldn't look at our brokenness. We should suppress it. Because our society tells us that we are entitled to happiness unending. And if we experience sadness or grief or anger or frustration, any of those types of things, we want to stuff that because that's just not what God made me for. God wants me to be happy. And we stuff it over and over and over and over again to the point that we've created this gulf between us and the Holy Spirit, and we don't even know what it's like anymore for the Spirit to just gently lean on a part of our hearts. This is what a, the Christian life looks like, in, in part, in part. And I just didn't feel like I could go any further without emphasizing that portion here. It's really important that if we're going to grow and change, that we quit stuffing our sin. We've got to quit ignoring it. We've got to quit rationalizing our brokenness. We've got to quit rationalizing it. I was reading a book recently, and, I, and the author was talking about how many people these days, they talk about their sinfulness and their brokenness like we talk about cancer. You know, somebody might say, well, I got cancer because you know, it runs in the family. Well, I'm, I'm a, I, I struggle in this area because my dad was also an alcoholic. That may be true, but cancer is no less deadly just because it runs in your family. Alcoholism is no less deadly because your daddy did it. We still have to repent and change. We still have to repent and change. So whatever it is that's in your family, in your genealogy, whatever it is that you inherited from your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa or whoever else it is, it doesn't, that really, that's, that's fine. It's, it, it may be helpful to know that story. But at the end of the day, will we own it? Because it's not my granddaddy's, it's mine now. Will I face this part of my life? Many of us complain that we can't hear Jesus speak to us very well. 
We don't know the voice of God in our lives. I think one big reason in our culture is because we are, we are consumed with being happy. And if you want to meet Jesus, he's waiting for you in the swamp of your brokenness. And if you keep stuffing your brokenness, you keep stuffing it, pushing it down, ignoring it, acting like it's not there, putting all your weight on it to hold it down so you don't have to deal with it, you are ignoring the voice of Jesus in your life. He wants to meet you in those hard places. He wants to meet you there. Here's why I know he wants to meet you there. Because of something beautiful that Jesus said, starting in verse 37. Three more verses. On the last day of the feast, John points out the great day for a reason. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me. The last day of the feast is interesting. Because it's on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast of booths, that the priests would take um, vessels of water and wine. And they would pour out the water and the wine around the altar. And they would lead the congregation of worshipers in prayers. And their prayers would be two categories. God, please send rain or water. And God, speed up the resurrection. Let it come upon us. Now, back in those days, it meant something deep. It related to their pain in a significant way. Because these people, remember, were living under the oppression of the Roman government. They were an occupied country. That were, they were bullied. There was rampant, systemic, societal injustice. Crucifixions, beatings, abuse suffered at the hands of Roman uh, military people. And so they're praying for the resurrection to come. And it's Jesus who in this moment, possibly, possibly, as he looks around at all these worshipers on the temple mount, at this, possibly at this moment during the great feast on the last great day that Jesus is compelled to stand up and said, and he said, drink out of me. Drink out of me. I am living water. A theologian that I was uh, reading said that living water was the ancient way of talking about simply running water. Running water. I'm not trying to despiritualize it because I know we all want living water to be like this life, like this, some spiritual like thing with like unicorns and rainbows and like mystical things happening in our lives. And I think all that can happen, not the, not the unicorns, but I think all, uh, Jesus wants that to happen in your heart. He really does. But when Jesus says that he is living water, he's saying, I am running water. Now that meant something to those people back then because they lived in a very dry climate. It didn't rain that frequently. And so they had these cisterns that they had dug and created. Where when it rained, it would fill up these cisterns and that would feed their, their, that would be their drinking supply for a while. 
But as in any place on any par- in any part of the world, you've got bugs and dirt and dust. And after a while, that water gets gross. And it would be really nice if it rained again so we could have fresh running water. And it's interesting that Jesus is looking around and maybe in his mind he's thinking, you know, these people look a lot like a cistern. Old water. Old water. And they need fresh water. Running water. There's this place up in the mountains. There was this community of mystics that lived in the mountains above the Dead Sea, just right outside of, right outside of Jerusalem. And they would carve these aqueducts into the hills. And whenever it would rain really hard, these aqueducts would fill with water, be running water, and it would fill up their, it would fill up their little basins and their little cisterns that they would create. I've not been there, but I've heard that anybody who's been there can see these things, can see this. And then Jesus says, if you really believe in me and drink me in, drink me in, something incredible will happen in your life. Water will come bubbling up from inside of you. And he says something before he says that. As the scripture has said. And so this begs the question, what scripture is Jesus talking about here? What is he referencing? Most people believe that he's thinking about a text in Ezekiel 47. It's in Ezekiel 47 that Jesus may be referencing. In Ezekiel 47, you've got to think about this, Ezekiel is prophesying to the Jews who are in captivity. And he has various visions. God showing him things about the future of the Jews. The Jews are slaves in Babylon. They're slaves there. And as they're dwelling in Babylon, they're longing to be home. But the home that they have to go back to is a broken home. The temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem has been obliterated. And Ezekiel receives this picture from God. And it's of a new temple. A new temple. And he says something interesting really happens in this temple. Water begins to flow out from the doorway, the threshold of this temple. Water begins to pour out. At first, it's a shallow stream. And he says, this stream begins to flow down to the Dead Sea. Anybody heard of the Dead Sea in here? It is so concentrated with salt, nothing can live in the Dead Sea. You could go jump on the Dead Sea. That's how, that's how thick it is. You can lay on the Dead Sea. You can't walk on it, but you can lay on it. The Dead Sea is gross and it's dead. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. And this river that is pouring out from the inside of the temple, from the belly of the temple, is, is, is pouring down toward the Dead Sea. And as Ezekiel in his mind's eye is walking with this river, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until it covers him and he's swimming in it. And then when the water hits the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea comes to life and all of a sudden vegetation begins to grow around the Dead Sea. Life begins to happen and fish are in the Dead Sea and people are fishing in the Dead Sea and they're eating of it. And the Dead Sea, the thing that was dead and nasty and swampy is now beginning to nourish their souls. 
This is what Jesus is saying when he says, drink of me. Now, here's the tough thing about texts like this. He doesn't say, here are three things you need to do now. He just says, drink of me. And if you're like me, I'm going, oh, okay. <laughs> what does that mean? What does that look like? What does it mean to drink of you? What I love about this text this morning is that Jesus doesn't say, if you want to be healed, if you want to change, join this program. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. Those are good. This isn't an anti-program or anything like that. I'm just saying that in this text, Jesus is not giving us a bunch of how-tos. He says simply this, I want to appeal to the glory of myself, and I want to invite you to drink of that glory. I want you to thrust your life into the glory of me. Thrust your life into it. I want to end with um, how that works in my life. All I can do is give you a picture. I don't know what to tell you to do. <laughs> I'm preaching a sermon and I don't know what to tell you to do now. Um, all I can say right now is I'm at a place in my life where I really am aware, acutely aware of my need for Jesus. I need him. I really need him. Every day. That's not just like, I'm not just being a preacher here. I really need Jesus. If I was not getting a paycheck from this church and was preaching right now, I would say the same thing. I need Jesus. How did I get here? It took me years to learn this. It took years for the Spirit to drill through my stubborn self-reliance. I've come to a point at which I'm totally convinced that I am powerless to defeat sin in my life without the help of the Holy Spirit. Attempting to fight sin by my own strength left me for decades tired and hopeless most of my adult life. I'd go on a good run, I wouldn't stumble, and I'd think that I'd finally done it, and then I'd fall again. Anger, unkindness, selfishness, hatred, and a host of other impairments in my soul led me to many, many days, a valley of shame. And the shame was so painful that I would often try to offset that shame with a number of medications. I'd binge on entertainment. I'd run to sweets and food. I'd turn to meanness, lust. Years and years of that cycle left me broken and with a deep thirst for living water. Living water. I love the idea of living water because it implies that the drinker, me, is desperate, thirsty, and consumed with one thing, drinking from the bottomless well that is God. You see, when we talk about defeating sin in our lives, we are by default talking about putting on Jesus. 
But here was the problem. I didn't want Jesus. As a pastor. I mean, I like the idea of Jesus. I like to preach about him. But I didn't want to put on Jesus like I'm talking about today. What I wanted was to not sin. Like Mater says, to not to. I wanted to not sin. I wanted to no longer feel shame. So I could go on with my agenda for life. Even ministry. I wanted to be nice and obey God. But I still wanted to be king of my life. I didn't know this for a long time. I really didn't. I didn't know that deep down inside, my biggest soul impairment was not anger, lust, whatever. I didn't know. I didn't know that underneath all that was I wanted to rule my life. I had no idea. It took me years to figure that out. But failure after failure left me with a mysterious gift. And I didn't know I had this gift for a long time either. A gift that over the years made more and more noise in my heart. Here was the gift. It's the knowledge that the gratification which every taste of sin gave me could not compensate and heal the powerful and lingering shame in my heart. As I matured in ministry and began to grow more and more astute as a student of the soul and a student of people and a student of relationships, I was watching what my ugly habits and tendencies were doing to me and to those I loved, even to the church that I pastored. And something beautiful began to happen in my heart. With entrenched sin still present in my life, I began to see Jesus as better than my hollow, fleshly gratification. It was only after tasting darkness over and over and over again that I finally experienced my eyes being open. I began to actually want Jesus. And this was long after I asked Jesus into my heart. Law, years after. Over two decades after. I wanted Jesus' presence in my life. And I don't remember when that happened. I don't remember when I went from, Jesus, please forgive me of this and change me. Jesus, please forgive me of this and change me. Jesus, please change me. Jesus, please change me. Jesus, please change me. Oh, I'm so tired of saying that, Jesus. Jesus, please change me. I don't know when I went from that to, Jesus, I want you. I don't remember when that happened. It was like, like a process, like overlapping. But that's where I am now. Like, I want you. I want you. I wanted his presence, his life, his love, because sin had left me so gaunt and haggard. I needed Jesus. I need Jesus. Looking back over the years, I felt so gross and disgusting, so much shame. And I can now see God as I look back, wading through the swamp of my soul sovereignly showing me, using my sin and shame to get down to my deepest impairment, self-reliance. Trusting in myself. 
And this was years into full-time ministry. <laughs> I'll understand if you don't want to come back. Um, <laughs> I finally realized that I needed every part of Jesus, all of him, every part of him. I began to believe with all of my heart that the only person who could save me was Jesus. The cross began to make more sense to me. It connected with my life. It connected with me. Finally, Jesus lived in the same ugly, defiled world as I failed in every day, and he overcame it. He overcame it. That was incredible to me, that realization. And he was resurrected after he was killed for it. He overcame. He overcame. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. Because I don't have any points to give you. All I have is this story. I allowed my life, and I'm allowing my life to merge with Jesus. And there are days that I fail, and there are days that I feel like Jesus shines. And so this text closes with the writer simply saying, when Jesus said this, come and drink from me, he was talking about the Holy Spirit being given to all believers, to everyone who trusts in him. I'm asking you to enter in to your story with Jesus. I feel so inadequate right now. I feel, I feel some fear too. Because my fear is, is that you're going to walk away going, okay, what do I do with that? And I don't know what to tell you to do with this. All I know is that if you face your darkness and give yourself to Jesus and root down in his church, I know we've gone over, I don't, I don't care. I'm not going to read this last part. Here's, what the, here's one of the things the Spirit did in my life. Here's what bubbling up water looks like partly in my life. I've come out of hiding. Because as a pastor, you don't get to do community with people. Because if they know you, they use that against you at some point. And if you tell people your stuff, they're like, oh, I can't follow you. You're not a good pastor. And I'm like, all my friends do the same thing, you know. I'm not talking about like ministry, you know, things that get me kicked out of ministry. I'm just saying just crap in my life. So I've come out of hiding. And so when I read the Bible, when I read in the Bible that one of the primary instruments that God uses to set people free is through the frequent practice of the confession of sin, I felt compelled to do this. I had to. I was that desperate to be healed. It's not because I'm so humble and so spiritual. I'm just desperate for Jesus because I'm broken. And so I do this. Today I do this. Habitually, it is a practice in my life. A practice. And I'm not ambiguous when I confess. I don't like call a friend and say, dude, you know, <laughs> I messed up this week. He's like, what category are we talking about here, you know? I'm vulnerable and brutally honest, and that's really, really hard. Because there's a lot of pride in my life, even though a lot of it's been dislodged. 
There are a number of people who know everything about me. Everything. Everything. And I mean, I'm talking about confessing some of the things that I'm like, ooh, I really want to hold that one back. Everything. Every entrenched, stubborn sin in my life or was in my life. There are people that know this. My most embarrassing and shameful thoughts and actions. My selfish idiosyncrasies. Everything. And here are the people who know this. I'm not going to say their names. There are a dozen other pastors, both in Memphis and outside of Memphis, that know everything about me. Everything. My dad knows everything about me. The elders of our church know everything about me. Everything. My wife knows everything about me. And we're still married. You are awesome. (laughs) And I've got a handful of friends, some in this church, that I've done life with for a long time, who have proven to me, because of my unique status in their life as their pastor and their friend, they've proven to me with their love and their loyalty that I can trust them. Men who I know will pray for me and encourage me and challenge me to fight to repent. So if you hear me say anything, if you hear any boasting today, then hear this boasting. I am boasting in my weaknesses. I am weak. I am frail. I am desperate. I need Jesus. And so do you. And some of you just don't realize it yet. You need him. You don't need me to fix you with an amazing sermon. You don't need to have 15,000 counseling appointments with me. I'm willing to meet with anybody, anytime, just about. If it's 3 a.m., it better be good. (laughs) So when I read that the just shall live by faith, what I don't read into that is I believe in Jesus and I prayed a prayer when I was a kid. Faith for me is, is trusting Jesus with my brokenness and whatever he wants me to do to fix it and address it. And it's hard and it's scary, but you will be transformed if you enter into that Jesus life. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your grace. We love you and we need you. And I so desperately desire for my brothers and sisters here to find your life and your grace. I so desperately want them to know this. Jesus, I pray that they would root down with me and with the others in our church who love them and go through the the motions, the routines, the rhythms of being in the church. God, we need you. We love you. I cannot wait for part three next week. In Jesus' name, amen.